The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. But don't for a moment think that that is the only benefit that you derive from the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. No! Unlike other shows that deliver merely information, entertainment, distraction, this show provides its followers, its fans, and its audience with a limitless supply of inexhaustible stamina. That's right. Think about it. That is the real benefit. How does that accrue to you? Well, it's very simple. If you have great clarity of vision, if you have your five F's constantly polished and, uh, and refined and up to date, if you have a clear picture of what you are supposed to be doing and how you're supposed to do it, all of those things provide you with a limitless supply of inexhaustible stamina. That's right, because the lethargy that infects so many of us these days comes from a state of confusion. It comes from a sense of not understanding exactly how the world really works and not understanding your place in it and not understanding what it is that you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to do it. And so, by providing you with those things, and that, after all, is the entire purpose of the Rabbi Daniel Appen show, well, not surprisingly, you suddenly discover yourself bouncing out of bed, you discover yourself operating with more enthusiasm and more excitement, no listlessness, no slowness, no lethargy, yes, a limitless supply of inexhaustible stamina, that's our trademark, and nobody exemplifies this more than Mrs. Lappin. Welcome, Susan. Wow. <laughs> I don't know that I can live up to that billing, but okay. <laughs> um, so I thought um, that we should interview each other, basically. Not, you know, not lengthily or anything, but just, uh, um, but we should, we should, after all, uh, we're talking, what I wanted to talk about today was essentially how do you know, and I'm talking mainly to single men and single women, Okay. how do you know he is the one or she's the one? How many times in our career in the rabbinate has a young man said to us in response to our question of why are you not married? His answer is... I haven't found the right one. I just haven't found the right one. Which raises the obvious question of, well, how do you know when you have found the right one? Well, this is going to be a very short show because the answer really is you don't. The same way, and, and I, I might reference, I don't remember which of your books it's in, but otherwise I would give a plug for the book. But, you, you know, you say that, oh, faith, that many things are built on faith. And among them are businesses and marriage. You, you cannot know 
when you invest time and effort and money into a business that it's going to succeed. You cannot know when you would jump into a marriage that is going to succeed. We're not profits. And so the answer really is uh, that was it's a really short show today because the answer is you cannot know. <laughs> so that really is you know right there one of the most important things today. And um and somebody would then say to you, Susan, well, I don't understand. What, what are you saying? Surely I can't be expected to propose marriage to somebody I don't really feel confident is the right person for me to propose marriage to. So, Or accept a marriage proposal. Or accept a marriage proposal from if I'm not really sure. Unpack that a little bit. Um, you know, I think it's a we like certainty, which is one of the reasons we're a very legal society, because we want to be able to point when something goes wrong. We want to be able to sue and be told somebody's going to pay for things going wrong. But that isn't how the world really works. <laughs> Good try. <laughs> <laughs> things, you know, things go wrong. You cannot know. None, none of us know the future and know how th things are going to impact for another person as well as for ourselves. We don't know what our personalities and our characters will be in five years. Will they be better? Will they be damaged? Will we do something that really is a huge problem and makes us less of a person than we are today? Or are we a greater person than we are today? We can't know that about ourselves. We certainly cannot know about it about someone we're going to marry. So all you can do, but the other choice is, do you go and you lock yourself in a room and you don't go out because life is too scary? Or do you go ahead with life and then you work your very best to make things work correctly? You know, I think that people believe that somehow the the calamities and disasters and the pains and tribulations of life um, can be eliminated if you just pick the right person which is not true it's That's a lot it's absurd a, it's yeah that part of it is is whatever god has planned for you is planned for you um and the only question is whether you tackle that together with somebody else or whether you tackle it alone and so really i think what uh, we'd like to to do for you dear happy warrior is persuade you that um, yes it is not a matter of choosing the right person this is not cinderella this is not hollywood this this is not finding the one person destined to be your mate from the beginning of time it's not like that at all and what we're hoping to do is not only tell you that but actually enlist your agreement your participation your grasping of that idea because it is a huge change from what the popular culture tells us about marriage if i can um just come from a little you, you used a phrase about the one person destined for you from all time ancient jewish wisdom actually teaches that 40 days it's going to sound like i'm contradicting but i'm not 40 days before the formation of the the fetus the embryo a heavenly voice goes out and says, the daughter of so-and-so is for so-and-so. In other words, your absolute best marriage partner is decreed 40 days before you're, you're even formed, before conception. So how so doesn't is, this so contradict, which what I don't think mean? it does. I don't think it does contradict. Because what it means is 
Yeah, there is one person destined to be the best person with whom you could do the best possible marriage. But lots of things can happen. You may not be the person that that person needs by the time you're ready for marriage. That person, there may be an accident. That person may not even be alive anymore. That person can marry somebody else. In other words, you can marry somebody else. The fact that there is a best is sort of an interesting philosophical discussion, but when it comes down to practicalities, you can make a great marriage with a number of people, and you can make a terrible marriage with the person that could have been your best partner. That, that I think, is right. Now, you may be interested in what the uh, classical explanation of that uh, thing you mentioned, which says that 40 days before somebody is conceived, uh, that person's ultimate life mate has been decreed. And what that is, and, and you're right, of course, there's no contradiction with what we're discussing today. But the, the idea there is that from a, a godly perspective, which is essentially above time without the constraints of time in any way at all, um, it's, it's a sort of retrospective, the, the person whom you are going to marry is the person that was retroactively selected for you in the first place so in other words you validate the plan of the universe if you like by getting married you're actually confusing me but I'll, so i as i said this belongs in philosophy class fine all right but so we're let's, into practicality let's in go practical i'll tell you what i want to do i want to go back and uh i want to tell the story of a young woman um who was uh, an active and involved member of our synagogue. Um, you and I met in synagogue. In synagogue for the first time, right? We all, did. Kind, all kinds of wonderful things happen in synagogue. We were one of many couples who met in our synagogue. It was a congregation that attracted young Jewish singles from around the country. And not surprisingly, marriages began to happen, and our own. Uh, was in fact the second marriage. When you say not surprisingly, I would say actually very surprisingly because most of the people who walked in the door had been raised in or were the products of 1960s, 1970s um, culture. And I think they were as shocked as everybody to find that they started thinking that marriage was a worthwhile endeavor and something they were eager. And why to did do. they think that? Because for the first time in their lives, most of them had no religious or biblical background or upbringing. And uh, it was my uh, great pleasure and enormous privilege, and later on, Susan joining me, hers too, uh, to bring. A, a window into the world of biblical truth uh, into the lives of these many people. And, and uh, Susan and I were among the very few people, a tiny handful of people in a large congregation that had actually been raised uh, in homes that took the Bible seriously and had relationships with God. So uh, let's do just a quick retrospective of our whirlwind romance. Well, we? you, you were going to you yeah, you do to that. somebody else. I'll come to that in a moment, yes. But first, I know you don't like talking about us and you and me, but now, now is the time for candor because when you think about it, it's really just you and me talking with one another, you and I. Um. Oh, gosh. I thought like, I'd get you on the grammar you me, here. You and me. Talking with one another. And it's uh, I, you and I. I it's don't, just, it's not. It's an intimate. I'm not sure. 
an intimate little conversation just between you and me and a few hundred thousand of our closest friends. Happy Warriors Between you and me, I think is correct. Fine. Okay. I'll fix it on the grabber while you talk about our romance. Yeah, you can can edit (laughs) it. So so I am a rabbi of a newly planted congregation in Venice, California. It's basically one of Los Angeles' beachfront cities. You had Santa Monica, Venice, Marina del Rey. And um, there, there we were. My boat lived in Marina del Rey. I lived in Venice. Uh, many of our uh, people who, who became involved in the congregation lived in Venice or Santa Monica. And there was an old synagogue on the boardwalk that we uh, revitalized and uh, people started coming. I'm at this point uh, a single young rabbi who had very little intention of starting a synagogue, but you know, sometimes the good Lord has plans. And uh, what was more striking to me was that there was this large cohort of young singles who um, actually I'd never met people like this before. People uh, without a, a Jewish religious background, but who were deeply and passionately hungry for more information and for more authentic spiritual connection. I'd really never met people like that before. So I, um, I'm, I'm the rabbi, and I'm very, very conscious of the fact that rabbis need to be married. It, it's, look, you're, you're not a complete person, and, uh, and to be able to credibly counsel somebody uh, on their marriage and family problems, issues, and concerns. If you yourself haven't had to deal with them, you know what? There's a real credibility problem there. That and for for many other reasons, uh, having uh, having to do with single female members of the congregation, married women in the congregation, an unmarried rabbi is at best awkward and at worst uh, problematic. So I knew that I was going to have to leave soon because I just didn't I saw no avenue forward to marriage. Now, look, um, I, in hindsight, I, I'm embarrassed. I'm, I'm embarrassed about some of the things I'm even telling you that that I didn't even fully have. Uh, I knew the stuff intellectually, but I hadn't absorbed it sufficiently myself um, to know that you know what you've just you you just got to pick a woman who who has feminine attributes and to whom you're attracted and who ideally comes from a nice family and and go for it you know just, i should have understood that and known that and somehow uh, i'd been single probably uh, for for longer than was ideal um so you know what 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 are we going to do and uh, I thought, well, the only thing to do was was find a replacement married rabbi and quit the uh, the synagogue and the rabbinate because too many new people were coming. And then um, what happened, Susan? Well, just from my perspective, when you say you could, I think you could have. I think you could have been married years earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, could have. And I, could have, and I say and should have in... In a sort of not. But I, I mean, I love the way things have worked out. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so well, you're getting yourself in a little bit of a quarter here today. Forget it. But, we'll, we'll uh, no, it so I was just say that you could have been married, and from the way I look at it, that where you and maybe more so your parents, because I don't think it bothered you as much as it bothered your parents. Yeah. Um, God 
was waiting. I, you know, we have a, we have a bit of an age difference between us. To and say the least, yes. You could have been married when I was in junior high or in high school. Yes, and that, <laughs> and that would have caused a bit of a scandal if it would have been you and me. <laughs> so that, in my mind, God was basically saying, you know what? Don't we're not going to. You're not going to get married yet. He was. There was a protection. There was a. There was a, a hand of protection over you to keep you from getting married, so that we could get married. But. But yes, you, would you would you uh, count endorse? on that? No. no, if 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 a child of yours said, "I'm waiting," you know, for this right person, and I know God's just delaying. No, I think no, you could you have. Wouldn't. I but I think because I think how to say this tactfully. You <laughs> <laughs> just go for it. <laughs> well, you were you were you were doing a lot of very very exciting things, including you were an accidental rabbi, which means yes. you were also you had a business, you were working, you were yes. you were working full time, and the synagogue sort of came into being. So you were running a very very busy life, and you were an immigrant, which meant you were adjusting to living in a new scratch. country. Yes. So you had a lot of things going on. Uh, had you not had all those things going on and you were, let's say, a child of mine, I think I would have, I think that there are things you could have done to build your um, social, what is that, social IQ, whatever they use, EQ, your emotional quotient, to to improve certain things that would have had you ready to get married. Without question. I don't think you were ready to get married. Ready to get married? Susan, I wasn't ready to rent a motor car. They shouldn't have allowed me to sign a (laughs) rental certificate, right? Um, Yes, actually, (laughs) as as more than one rental agency found to their dismay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, that's not true. You're an excellent driver, but yeah. You, uh... um, but on the other hand, if um, if a couple gets engaged in a state of utter calm rationality with no passion, no emotional excitement, no intensity, but everything just all the blocks, all the, the squares check off and all the, uh, the items uh, coordinate, that's also a problem, isn't it? Yes. It is. You know, though, again, I think this is the bottom line. There is no 100% perfect system or 100% um, follow these rules and everything. There is there's no such thing. Life is messy. Yes. Yes. And you have to just so do the best with what in, you can. In my case, my parents, I th- my parents were very relieved Well, they were uh, very happy to meet me. Yes. They were very happy to meet <laughs> you uh, because... You know, I, I was in my late twenties, early th- early thirties. Early thirties. Yes, early thirties. That's right. So, uh, and remember this in a in a community where it's not uncommon uh, for a, a guy to be married when he's twenty three, twenty four, twenty five for sure. Your brother, your younger brother, was married. Your young other younger brother was engaged, I believe. Yes, and my sister and your sister was married. Was married. So yes. you were so the oldest in the family, the and you were the you were the. Yes, they were not. Uh, they were not feeling uh, calm at all about me. So, so what happens? Uh, just to and again, we're just sharing this with, as I say, a, a, a few hundred thousand happy warriors. But um, okay, fine. I'll I'll be honest. What happened is, um, I was concerned 
I, I realized that this couldn't carry on. The synagogue was growing very rapidly. I was teaching. How many classes a week was I teaching? Oh, goodness. Well, Four. because you were working, you were teaching in the morning before you went to work. At 6 a.m. you started teaching, and I then you doing went to work. Four, uh, I was doing a 6 a.m. class four or five mornings. I think I had one morning off, so I was I doing four mornings a week. You were teaching about probably four times on, on the Shabbat. And then four evenings. And then evenings. E- evenings. So, uh, so it was it was pretty intense, and uh, and then also counselling, right? So I remember one instance where uh, a, a gentle. Okay, this is a, a longer story, but side point. Um, there was a. Uh, uh, a, a film star called Elliot Gould. There is a film star. There is a film star called Elliot Gould. We were married by this point already when this happened. Okay, well, this, this was typically <laughs> what happened. It's, it's um, a good story anyway, tell it. The, uh, he, he had a, a, an associate who was a talent manager who uh, wanted to find out more about his Jewish roots, and he and his wife wanted to meet with me. And um, and so the man called up and said, you know, I'm, I'm so-and-so, I'm a friend of Elliot. I said, yeah, I was expecting your call. He said, um, I, I'd like to set an appointment with you. I said, sure, we can do that uh, five o'clock on uh, Wednesday. And he said, Rabbi, I'm really sorry. I won't be off work by five. And I said, you misunderstand me, 5 a.m., and there was a long uh, silence and a bit of an audible gulp at the other end. And he just said, I'll be there. And uh, he and his wife became dear friends and longtime members of the congregation for, for many, many, many years. Uh, the, the, all I was doing was, number one, I was trying to test for seriousness. I had very limited time and I had to make sure it was somebody who was serious. And number two, um, those were the sort of times I had available. So there I am. And it's pretty busy. And uh, I, meanwhile, um, look in again in in an, in an Orthodox Jewish synagogue. Men and women sit separately on either side uh, of a uh, of of a barrier called a mechitza. And uh, I got up to give my Friday night talk one Friday night, and I look and I I am struck by a beautiful looking young woman in a green coat. On sitting on the, I just remember the green coat, sitting on the the women's side. I was very struck, and uh, I, I I made a mental note to uh, say I hope I'll be able to find out who she is after the service. But um, during the service, um, Michael Medved, my uh, my friend and partner in in many ventures, uh, came up and said, um, uh, "You might be interested to know, but there's a girl from Brooklyn in the synagogue." A new girl, we've not seen her before. And I said, oh, um, yeah, girl in a green coat in the fourth row. He said, yeah, that's right. So uh, then we we met afterwards and moved moved on from there. Um, not quite. All right. So I was visiting a friend and, and came to the synagogue, and I had never seen a synagogue like this. I the, Again, like you said, this was a group of people you had never met. It was a group of people... I had never met. I had never, and and quite frankly, your um, ten minute talk on Friday night and then on Saturday morning was also something. I I have a very good education, and I was um, quite frankly used to going to synagogue. And I could, as the rabbi would start talking, I could do the next few sentences. I knew exactly what they were going to say, and I didn't know what you were going to say. And it was it was a bit of a uh, 
glass of cold water of, oh my goodness, whatever I learned in third grade, there's another adult level for this. And that you were revealing. It's, it's not all Bible stories for kids. It's not just, well, you know this, you know, you, it's, wow, there's another layer to it. Go beneath. So I actually was, I fell in love with the synagogue. Um, oh, and, with, and I thought and all You thought it was you. <laughs> no, and I, um, I had, I was in a, I was in a place in my life where it was very easy to move. Um, I had just finished college. I was ready. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And you were 20 or 21. 21. You were 21. Yeah. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And um, it was like, okay, you know what? I met a single girl in the community. We, she was looking for an apartment. We looked for an apartment together. We got an apartment together. I moved out for the community, though my mother tells me later, years later, my mother told me that she knew that there was something special how I felt about you, but I didn't know that. Interesting. I didn't know that either. So, but so, uh, you know, I was a member of the community and we would be sometimes at tables together. We would, you know, and I was in your classes. And how long was it before we had our first date? Um, it was about two months, two and a half months later. I was so we'd, we'd never been alone together right. up to that point, no. but we uh, we had sat at many dinner tables and... Uh, I was in your classes. And in, in, we were in classes and classes. so on. And uh, from that, that first date was... Well, it wasn't actually a date. It was Michael um, invited me to a dinner at his house, which is something he did very often. There was a Monday, Monday night class that everyone, pretty much everyone in the community went to. Yeah. And he very often would have. I would say, over. Uh, w without Michael Medved, I don't think that congregation ever would have got off the ground. No, I mean, I couldn't have done. I no. couldn't have done it no. alone. Yeah. And he would very often have people over for a meal after the the class ended or a snack or whatever. So he invited me, and I assumed that it and was that's nine o'clock because the class ran yeah. seven. It was ninety minutes from seven thirty to nine. Yeah. I assumed that there would be a whole bunch of people there, and it turned out there was only one other guest, and that was you. So I don't even know you could call it a date. It was a setup. Yeah, right. And then what happened after um, that? Well, after that, you drove me home, and 12 days later, we got engaged. But you're leaving out our first actual date. So the, uh, that was the next. That was, the, that uh, was a Monday. Th a well, Sunday you went morning. out of. Um, oh, I was, maybe, I, yeah, I was out of you town. You know, it'd be hard to... I was speaking on the East Coast for five days during that right, time, Right, you I think. flew away yeah. without telling me you were going. Yes, that's even right. Even though we had clearly, in the car, it was the next step would have been for you to ask me out, and instead it was you were gone. Yeah. Was not good. Not a good I, move. Look, I was not <laughs> in good... I, 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 sh I mean... If, if your parents were more <laughs> controlling of you and were on, were, the, spot. on, the, on spot, the spot, there's no way they would have let this happen. So when you came back from out of town, no, you know what? I don't, I don't think that counts as the 12 days. I think the 12 days counts from when you came back from out of town after um, a very frosty phone conversation <laughs> because you called someone else in the community just to say, wish them a good Shabbat, a Shabbat you know, good Shabbos, a good Shabbat. And I was there. And that's when I found out you weren't, you hadn't that, told me. That's when I found that out was, you were That was David, out. right? Yes. I called him. <laughs> oh and so uh, that okay, was when folks, I found this, out you were out of town. Yeah, this, this may be getting just a little <laughs> bit too embarrassing But when me, you but came right. back, you did ask me out. And we, of course, went boating because what else does one do? 
Well, naturally. I mean, that's just the standard first Orthodox Jewish date: boat sailing. (laughs) Not exactly, (laughs) but in my case, it was uh, I needed to know where you know whether you could handle a boat at that stage. Well, maybe even that was a deal breaker. I mean, I I did have to know this. (laughs) That was very clear. You knew that, that, right? That you had a mistress in your life. Yes. Really, you could tell that first time. In what way? I was you that you were in love with this boat. I loved the boat. I really did. Yeah. Um, so at any rate, twelve days later, we got engaged. Twelve days after that, we got engaged, which is not something we'd have ever wanted to see our children do. No, at all. No, no, but no. We did that. Okay. But having said that, by the time we got engaged, we, we knew, really knew each, each other. other. We knew each certainly knew each other's in a non-romantic um, in a environment. Very, yes, which yeah. is a very healthy thing. I think we knew each hugely other hugely valuable. Um, I had actually already started teaching classes because I was one of the very, very few. I might have been the only woman in the community yes. with a ba- with any sort of a background, so I had already started teaching women's classes. And of course, naturally, I had to prepare you. Well, you and had. Work we had. We had, dis- we had so, certainly had a few conversations discussing. So we really did know each other without. But in much more of a other. of a brother sister arrangement than a. No, I wouldn't say it was a brother sister. It was a rabbi student. Student, all right. Okay. I mean, we didn't get. To, I don't think we got together in person to class. We just spoke over the phone about the class I was yeah. going to teach. It was. Yeah, right. Um, you know, but but we did know each other's basic religious and. Certainly, a character. I'd heard you speak many times at that point. I'd, yes. I'd seen you interact with lots of people. I probably knew you better than you knew me. Correct. Yes, that's true. Um, I I knew you um, as a beautiful girl, uh, an extremely um, um, the the current nomenclature would be a hot. You know, that's in your eyes, and that's a really big. I do get upset with you sometimes. Um, it was one of the reasons I don't listen to your podcasts. Because every once in a while, I think you focus on beauty too much. Because there really is such a thing as beauty in the eye of the beholder. And you and I have both known cases where a young man went out with a woman that we suggested. And he said, you know, I I don't want to go out with her. I don't find her attractive. And we said, you know, go out with her three times. And then and and they ended up getting married because he did find her attractive after he had spent uh, a little time with her. No disagreement there. Um, And I... uh, I also, you were... um, And your parents had made some phone calls and had checked into my family. (laughs) Yes, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) And so there was was a lot of back... By the time we went on our first date and got engaged, there was a lot lot of background information that was was known. Had your parents met me when we got engaged? No. We got engaged without them even meeting me. Again, that was just... um, It was just... circumstance. It was circumstance and... um, And, yeah. you know, there was. Look, I think we both felt this was very right. And the only and, and we're <laughs> overwhelmed by that feeling. And the only yes, thing I would add is, is that doesn't mean we couldn't have messed it up. And we probably a few times along our marriage had opportunities where if we had turned right instead of left or left instead of right, we would have messed it up. Yeah. And as yes, uh, it wasn't. Not, uh, I do think we found the right person, but I don't think that guaranteed a good marriage. I think that's that's probably uh, probably the right way, but um, but again, you know, for me, somebody who I was very rational and and, and logical, and I was very risk averse. So that, it was. I really do think there was a little God's hand pushing us because <laughs> it didn't make sense for either of us the speed with which we got engaged. Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, but for me, 
um, it's in in a certain sense. Uh, in a certain sense, it's counter to my advice to others, but in reality, it isn't, as I'll just clarify, in the sense that I was going to say that um, uh, from the time we actually went boating and uh, and for the, the next uh, couple of days, it, it quickly became apparent to me that... Uh, you know that I just yearned for you. I just wanted to have you in my life at all all times. It was a strange thing. It was not a sensation I was accustomed to to having in my life at all. It's not as if I had a a sort of sequence of intense relationships. I usually um, made absolutely sure that my relationships did not become uh, that intense. Uh, the reason I say it's not a violation of uh, of Rabbi Daniel Lappin protocol is because by that time we really had spent quite a lot of time together in a non-romantic context mm-hmm. where uh, we, 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 you knew a lot about my family, I knew about your family, and we'd had several months of seeing each other in action with other people. Yes, and I think this, that's a big deal. This is the way dating used to work in small town America up till 19, I call it 1960 or 62, whatever. But um, families knew families, people With knew that, each other. I would actually think it was the interstates. I think it was more the 50s. The interstate changed a lot of things. That, from So that one, that that one well I be attribute to the interstate. To a large extent, yeah, we've spoken about that. Um, so there we are. Uh, you marry not just me. And not just me and my boat. You and your community. Me and my congregation. Which was my community. Which at that was point. by that point already yours as well. And you now become uh, what in Jewish nomenclature is known as the Rebetzin, meaning the rabbi's wife, who has an unofficial position in the congregation, but a very real one. In in, in a sense, she would be very much like pastor's wives we've met in uh, many of our pastor friends. Um, he is officially the lead pastor of the church, but she is very involved. She might well be involved in teaching and counseling. She might lead services and she might do all kinds of things very much as part of uh, uh, the team, as it were. So that, that's what happened. So now a quick, uh, a quick story. I wanted to tell the story of uh, this young woman. I don't know who you're talking about. I know because at this point it could be so many, yes. right? Because we um, we we shepherded over a hundred marriages uh, during the following few years, but during that time, one of them is uh, a girl who, um, lovely girl, spent a lot of time in our home. Uh, very often stayed over at our home for Shabbat. Got to know our kids. They got to know her. This is obviously a few years after. Okay, now I know who you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and what's more, uh, when it came time for us to put together our crew for our sailing trip across the Pacific to Hawaii, she was top of the list and she quickly agreed to come. Okay. So um, at the same time. Can I just say talking about jumping in? Yes. She agreed to. That was right after we met her. She agreed to come. That whole close relationship oh, came after, after the boat, came after from the, the boat now trip. You see, and after. I didn't remember that. She took a leap of faith. She put herself on a small boat with us, three small children. Yes, that's right. And a couple from our synagogue and our friend Bob. She agreed to come on this boat with us when she had. She barely knew us. Oh, extraordinary! Oh, I have to ask her. Do yeah. you know what made her do it? 
I think she fell in love with yeah. us in the boat. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea of a sail trip and the idea of a from boat California sailing across to California. Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, fine. At the same time, uh, one of the most impressive young men that I ever met and, um, and whoever walked through the doors of our synagogue uh, was becoming involved and starting to uh, engage in Bible study, and, uh, and we became friendly with him as well. So one, uh, one summer, we are doing our regular boating trip on a small boat with a family in British Columbia off the coast of Western Canada. And we usually invited a, a couple of the young singles from our congregation to come with um, partially as a, uh, as a sort of educational experience. We felt let, let's give them a deeper and intimate insight into our marriage and let's our family. Let's just be honest here, though. We had, <laughs> um, I don't remember how many children at that point, but we probably had four, five, maybe six children. No, not, not so We used to bring single girls so that I would have a vacation, so that I could manage, I mean, yes. to make it a fun vacation for us. And a single guy or two would to, come for, help, uh, yes. to help with uh, running to run the, the boat. To run the boat, yeah. So, so you know, it's because uh, running the boat yourself is hard. So, um, but we deliberately did select these two people. We, and she was with us the whole summer. We invited him up just for a few days. He wasn't a, our... About a week. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and during we that, that deliberately. Week, yeah, of course we, we did, did that, that deliberately. very deliberately. Um, who else was with us on that trip? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. You do. All because right. they had met. She had met him at our table, at our Shabbat oh, table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she was not taken. And we were. We looked we at were each taken. other and said, we were thinking, this is the right guy for this her. This is exactly <laughs> the right guy for her. This is a match made in the Lappin household. I mean, this was it. Uh, and... Um, it hadn't sort of really clicked with either of them, but those long summer evenings on a boat in some quiet bay in British Columbia, um, yeah, that did the trick. Not only that, but when one of our daughters fell overboard in freezing water and he dove right in, I think that told a great deal about his character. Yeah, that settled <laughs> that settled it. Anyway, they, they got married. reason I mention that is because uh, a few years have gone by. And this couple, remaining among our closest friends, although they don't live here. Um, so, um, can we tell the story about their son? No. What, you don't think so? No, I don't. Well, nobody knows who we're talking no. about. No, 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 no. Is no, that that's right? too personal. You can tell stories from 20 years ago. You can tell stories from 30 years ago. You don't tell current stories. All right. So, in 10 years' time, and, God yeah, willing, we'll tell, we'll, tell the, we'll tell the story. <laughs> All right. Anyway, suffice it to say that um, we have uh, had the great pleasure of being involved in the marriages of some of their children um, as well. So, so there we are. Uh, it's it's very very beautiful. Um, so, um, I wanted to talk about one of the key things mm -hmm. in um, maintenance of a marriage: boating. No, come on. Uh, that that that's our mishigas. That's our uh, idiosyncrasy, if you like. But um, it's obviously very few people do that. But what 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 is important in terms of um, maintaining long term durability in a marriage? 
there is no one important thing. I think it's important for everyone to understand that marriage is so complex and um, and there's so much to it that on any complex thing, if somebody tells you, you know, here's the one secret you have to know, there's no such thing. There is no one secret and certainly no one secret for everybody. But nonetheless, uh, a very important thing is to accept the biblical idea that there is a moral obligation to be happy. Now, this is uh, not a commonly known, it's less understood. You see, there are other biblical things that people take seriously. Oh, we've got to, uh, we've got to work for justice, right? And uh, you have social justice warriors, many of whom will even quote the Bible, you know, justice, justice shall thou pursue. And they, yeah, listen, we're, we're into the Bible. Okay, you'll hear that. And, uh, and then there'll be people who say, okay, the Bible says, you, you know, you, you, you're not allowed to lie. You've got to be honest. Okay, Some fine. People take the Sabbath seriously. People take charity seriously. Yeah, there are a lot of there things to take things. seriously. Uh, the one that is a very serious one and doesn't... Uh, and doesn't get spoken about so often, is the moral obligation to be happy. So this has nothing to do with how you feel. You know, I, I think I've told you the story of how violently my mother reacted when she said, you need to be happy. And I said, well, then get me a motorcycle, I said, at the age of 14, and I'll be happy. And she reacted in a way that I haven't forgotten to this present day. So uh, being happy is not a function of whatever is outside. It's a function of an obligation you accept upon yourself. There was a story about uh, uh, Rebertson... Uh, Young Grace? Yes, exactly right. Um, so this is a, a woman who was born, or she was a young girl in a concentration camp with her family. And it was a, um, a slightly lower level concentration camp, which is one of the reasons that she survived, because most children did not survive. The arrival, the day they arrived, was their last day on earth. But um, she did, and her family was actually together. And um, her father told her, as a, a little girl, she was told that she had to, she had a job to do. And she said, a job? I'm, a, you know, I'm whatever. She was six or seven. And he said, yes, you must walk around with a smile on your face because you will give something to people that they desperately need if you walk around smiling. And she took that very seriously. And she passed away only a few years ago, I believe, in her 80s. And yeah. I don't think she stopped smiling from that point on. Yeah. Yeah, so the, accepting this as a reality in, in your life is hugely important, that you have a moral obligation to be happy. That's regardless of anything else that's going on in your life. You know, every life has its problems. Every life has its trouble. Every life has its pain. All of that, notwithstanding an obligation to be happy. And uh, and for those of you who are, uh, who are Bible-centric, I'll give you the uh, the references. And that is Deuteronomy uh, 16, 15, chapter 16, verse 15. And you shall be but happy. Uh, Deuteronomy 26, 11. And you shall be happy with all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and your household. 
and um, and finally chapter 28 in Deuteronomy verse 47 uh, you want to know why all these horrible bad things have happened to you as a as a people because you have not served the Lord your God with happiness and with full-heartedness on account of all the um, uh, the 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 goodness that God has done for you so this is a, a hugely important thing the idea of being happy and it is very important in a courting situation and even more important in a marriage situation. Well, I think one of the mistakes a lot of people make is that it's your spouse's obligation to make you happy. That's excellent. Thank you for mentioning that. That's exactly right. That's a very big thing. That uh, It's a big mistake that people make. I've got to marry somebody who will make me happy. That, that in itself is a false statement of the highest order. Um, Susan, let us also, for people who are uh, beginning to be aware of the huge power that flows from biblical understanding, uh, let's tell people about uh, something we've worked on um, for the last couple of years and which is now a fruition and, uh, and something that, uh, that is hugely effective. What you are talking about is our Scrolling Through Scripture very video course. And um, it can be seen on our on our website at rabbidaniellappin.com or wehappywarriors.com. And it's now, you know, it grew. You start, we started and we thought it would be 15 um, half-hour videos covering the first, the, basically a little more than chapter one of Genesis because it's the Jewish chapter rather than the chapter that's in the Bible we all use. And we thought it would be 15 and you couldn't do it in 15. You probably, I mean... Just to, to put it in perspective, the book of Genesis was taught in an hour and a half class once a week, and it took over 10 years in our synagogue yes. to go through that. So, <laughs> it's not so that So, we're you, not moving at that rate, but it did, but we, it, it did take 20 uh, online lessons to cover the It's now 20 online lessons verses. and a 44-page workbook yeah. to be able to take those, to help take those lessons and actually say, how what does this mean for my life today? It's not just an academic study. And I think it also study. gives people uh, an introduction to Bible study on a totally different level. Well, partially because it introduces people who do not know any Hebrew to the importance of, of Hebrew letters and Hebrew words and how a translation misses the mark in so many ways. And so that is now, actually just as of last week, it went up the entire complete thing, all 20 lessons. Everyone, anyone who ordered it previously is getting an email telling them how to fill in. They're mm. going to get everything. But the entire course is only available as of last week on the website. Workbook, 20 lessons, the whole shebang. Um, Susan, um, quiz, quiz time. Okay. Before 1962, mm -hmm. what percentage of Americans of the age of 30 had been married? Oh, gosh. Um, before 1962, I'm going to say, gosh, I think it's way up there. I'm going to say um, 75. Not quite. Over 60%. Okay. Over 60%, up till 1962, over 60% of people aged 30 had been married. Now, in by 2015, which is six years ago, uh, how many do you think? How many Americans 2015? Um, I'm going to say under 50%. You keep going. Um, in the 30s? 
keep going. Oh, my goodness, in the 20s then, obviously. Keep going. Really? Yes. Wow. About 17%. Wow. Only about 17% of Americans of the age of 30 have ever been married, yes. That is... So that includes... Divorced people, but... Uh, right, but it also includes, in other words, someone, if, let's say, someone was widowed and in their 70s, they are counted, uh, they're in this group. Yes. So it's, wow. Isn't that something? Um, it is. It's amazing. So, really, um, a very, very high proportion. Right now in the United States of America, what percentage of people report having no romantic involvement in their lives? I'm afraid to get well for after COVID. First of all, COVID. No, this uh, actually the statistic uh, is prior to pre-COVID. Yeah. Um, if only what did you say the percentage was married? Seventeen percent. Seventeen percent. So I'm going to say under thirty. Um, sixty percent of people do not have so a romantic interest do. in their lives. Forty percent do. Isn't that crazy? That is. It's um. And so there are all kinds of, I mean, individual happiness is an issue, and national fertility is an issue. There are all kinds of consequences to figures like this. But um, what, what do you, off the top of your head, what do you see as the reason for this? Why is it that the very natural God-given attraction of men for women and women for men, why has that been so diminished and overwhelmed to the point that it's now a minority of America? Thank God those figures, by the way, are they're worse in America than in many, many other countries around the world. So, you know, don't, don't, uh, don't necessarily assume this is true for wherever you live. But in the United States of America, uh, only 40% of people have a romantic interest. That means not only are married, but are thinking of being married or, or, or have a, a very serious. special, serious connection with somebody. That's a minority of people. Wh- how has this come about? Oh, I think we've made a lot of really, really bad mistakes over the past few decades. And one of them is the divorcing of romantic relationship from a physical relationship. So we we basically said they're two different things. You know, you can have a lot of physical relationships, but that doesn't mean you have to have a connection with somebody. And um, that's one. B, I think you have an awful lot of people who've grown up with fear. Fear of watching parents as parents, either without, either they, there was no positive, on one, both, there was no positive example where you said, wow, I would like that mm-hmm. in my life. And many people, sadly, have a lot of negative examples where they said, well, I certainly don't want that in my life. And we've also elevated career. Um, you know, you talk, we talk about the five Fs, and they have to be in balance with, with each other. Family, fitness, faith, faith um, friendship, and faith. And uh, did you say faith, family, friendships, finance, and fitness? Finance and, and we've, we've elevated finance um, in, in our society as that is what you need. You go to college for that. You, you spend your years. Don't even start thinking about relationship until you're in your late 30s because it's going to interfere with your, your making something of yourself. So, but we've got two brackets. You've got brackets that don't have a concept of romance it's just physical right a relationship and then you have right. a bracket that 
well, you know, the career is the the golden idol of our, the golden calf of our day for many people. Um, Susan. Yeah. Uh, we'll come back to this one as well. But uh, when you were 19 or 20, mm-hmm. did you see a marriage uh, in your uh, in, in your future? Um, so, you know, there, Susan, as, as a 19-year-old college student in Brooklyn, New York, um, I, I wonder, did you see marriage? And in your mind, had you sort of thought, well, I'd like a big family, I'd like to have seven children? <laughs> no, not quite. Okay, so I, I certainly, marriage, yes. And I, I think I grew up in a, because I did grow up in a an orthodox community, and so marriage was sort of taken for granted. And I think that's where one of the mistakes was. Because it was taken for granted. Because that's what everybody had done. All our parents had been married. All our grandparents had been married. Everybody, you know, you just got married. And at the same time, feminism had made inroads. And so I went to a very academic school. And the expectation was both the boys and the girls were going to become professionals and have careers. And no, I, at that point, I don't think people realize that there possibly could be a contradiction in how many ways can you focus your mind when you're in your 20s. So I, if you ask me at 19, I certainly saw marriage, but I also saw a big car- a career and I didn't realize that there might have to be trade-offs. Because it was the world, you're supposed to be able to have everything now. The world has really moved on to this new level where we're entitled to everything. Had you thought about whether when you do get married, you'd want to keep your maiden name? Or, no, uh, that was no. I never even thought in that detail. That it wasn't, was not, uh, and, we, and it wasn't. We weren't. It wasn't a feminist move. It was more just a. Um, it was. It was more of a matter of fact assumption. And where I fell down is I really didn't know a, a lot of career options. I mean, if I looked, <laughs> I knew you could be a doctor. I knew you could be a lawyer. I knew you could be a CPA. Um, I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to be a CPA. So I kind of assumed I was going to go to law school. And I came out to Venice and and that changed my life. And I got a job. And I was, you know, one of the hardest things I will tell you, and this was a huge, huge, huge challenge for me. When we got engaged, I had had gotten a job, you know, I needed. I was paying my rent and I was supporting myself. And it wasn't a job it was a job i lucked into it wasn't a job that i necessarily said oh this is the field i want to pursue it i you know but i was getting my feet and i was i was finding and it was a job in a financial company and i actually again fortuitously ended up being an assistant to a woman who was leaving on maternity leave and who was a vice president in the company and I understood very clearly that the last she the last time she had gone on maternity leave, her assistant had then been wooed away by a rival company with a huge increase in prestige and pay because of what she learned when she covered for this her boss over the months of the maternity leave. So I had basically lucked into something that was turning into a potentially very good career path. Yes. Um, and then we got engaged and you said, well, you need to quit your job. <laughs> that was Yes, I did. So against everything. First of all, 
every woman's magazine I'd ever read said, do not become dependent on your husband financially, right? Um, warnings, you know, this is your, you know, they'll, this is a bad idea. You do not want to make your financial future dependent on somebody else. Your fulfillment, um, I, I, it was, it, that was a, and I will say, you know, obviously there are, there's a lot of variety in the Jewish community and there, but specifically the, the stream in which I had traveled and grown up what the assumption was not that the mothers had careers, so it was new, but my generation was going to, and it was going to go with somehow it was going to match marriage and children. That everything was, was everything gonna work. was just going to work out. Yeah, um, I mean, literally, I probably had this idea that I would do dishes Monday night, my husband would do dishes Tuesday night, I would do Wednesday, he would do Thursday. It was, it was just this assumption that this was all, you know, it was all going to work. And so when you said, and, and it made sense, you were working at a job. So you were working from whatever, let's say nine to five, which probably more than that. And you were teaching before that. And you were teaching after that. If I had my own work schedule, we never would have seen each other. What I, and, and you knew, you understood that. And you also understood that being the Rebbitson of this community was going to, we, we had from literally the week after we got married, we had guests at our Friday night and Shabbat lunch tables every single week. Without exception. Without exception. And that meant you were cooking. And that was a big part of growing the community because that's yes, where the relationships were formed and where the where Judaism and God and Torah were really introduced to people um, along with the classes. And... That was a shocker for me. That was it. That was talk about a leap of faith. That was a very big leap of faith for me to do to quit my job. I remember. I mean, you were you were very very miserable and unhappy during that. It time. was a shock. I was yeah. in shock. It was. I was miserable and unhappy, but I was shocked. I was in shock, and it was, it was taking a step that I had never ever contemplated. You know, maybe if someone had said to me, "Look, by the time you have, you know, maybe you'll have children, then you'll want to stay home," but that wasn't. I, I was. I was there were no there were no children on the horizon at that yes, point. That's right. We weren't even married yet. And and you were right, but it was um that was a big shocker to me. Yeah, no, I remember it was a very, very hard thing. Very hard. And that may be if I say that I truly think we were men for each other, that was one of those places where I could have called it off at that point and said, This is ridiculous. You're a um patriarchal ogre uh, you know i'm gonna call it off did you know at that time that that was a deal breaker for me yeah i yeah. it wasn't that you would mm -hmm. it, it was just it was you, I wasn't, you were very, i wasn't threatening or anything no but, but it was just clear that, that was not what i that wanted. was your that the vision you had of of marriage yeah. and what a relationship would be meant that and yeah and again it wouldn't be that every woman has to quit when she gets engaged but because of our circumstances, our circumstances yes. that for us, that was an important that thing. That had to be. I, you know, I'm just sort of pulling together a number of questions people have yeah. sent in over the last few months and asked me uh, about. Um, so I'll throw one at you. I was going to ask you if you had any questions for me. Um, because you were single for a long time. Yes. And so I imagine there was a point that you must have said, oh, my goodness, what did I do? <laughs> you know, uh, and panic and and will you say, well, wait, is, is this really? I mean, am I really going through with this? This was a huge change. And you were a very, um, you were adventurous. You, you, you were not a, 
there was a reason you weren't you were working a nine to five job, but there was a reason you weren't only working a nine to five job. You needed a variety in your life. You needed a lot of excitement and adventure, and you were full of ideas. and And all of a sudden, you know, did the uh, phrase that's a disgusting phrase, but quote unquote, the ball and chain. I mean, did you panic and say, "Wait, wait, wait! I'm not really ready for this change. I like my life. I you had a pretty good life." After I met you, yeah, honest to goodness. I can't explain it because I was I was always it, it's not as if as you say I wasn't walking around moping at being single. I mean I was I I I was I was having a great time in my mind, you know, I was uh I was 19 and having a, a wonderful time. Um but no, to be honest, um from from that Sunday we spent boating in the rain when you bought homemade chocolate chip cookies which was a very calculated and shrewd move susan (laughs) that that was no accident i know that no it wasn't Uh, but no, I, I honestly had absolutely no doubt. Now, look, I, I mean, part of it was I was wildly attracted and and I felt a deep emotional connection. So um, and and part of that was because we'd known each other for three months already before there was anything. So, uh, no, I actually didn't. Nothing at all. I'm going to Dr. Freud here. Because <laughs> yes. I do believe you lost your voice the oh. day before the our wedding. Oh, that's true. That was a stress. Yes, that that is true. Now, so how do you explain? Yeah, look, this is true. I was stressed the the few days before the wedding. Um, I was stressed, and I'm not sure. Um, I just to add, this was we were the second wedding of our community, which, as as my husband said, ended up being over a hundred young, over a hundred couples met and married in the community. But um, we were number two because the night before our wedding, you actually performed the wedding the of the first, first couple. Yes, that's right. The night before I did their wedding. And the next day was our wedding. And we brought my father and mother to come along. My father was well, going to officiate. Wanted, they would have wanted to be at the wedding anyway, probably. Most Well, because they, <laughs> they like you. <laughs> um, in connection with which I am now going to tell the worst story in the whole world having to do with our marriage which you're going to wave violently to try and gesticulate you're going to draw your finger across your throat saying no this you can't tell the story but i am going to tell it quickly because we don't have a lot of time left um, and that is that um, we got engaged i had not met your parents they had not met mine right and you had not met my parents correct and they had not met you and uh, Your mother got on a plane the next day. So the next day, she was closer. My parents were thousands of miles away. Your my was parents only were in, were in San away. Jose, California. Yes. So my mother gets on a plane and she uh, phones and says, "Daniel, uh, I'm going to come down to meet Susan and to spend some time with the two of you, and uh, I will be there later today." So okay, um, and. Uh, can I just give My a picture of your mother? Who a, a I, remarkable, remarkable. Who woman. I was very close to, yes. and I, I really loved a great deal. But um, the image on people in the community had met my in-laws i had not because i had only been there a short while but other people had and i got a lot of quote unquote helpful advice which is they're very formal 
They are very British. And my mother-in-law can present on first acquaintance, could present if, if you're the queen mother, sort of as somebody who with a look could make an entire room wither. go wither. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. She was actually a very warm person, but she definitely had that British she, quality. She carried of, herself um, with the British was, dignity yes, and she reserve. Did. There was British dignity and reserve and majest- majesticness. Yeah. Yeah. No, she, she could be intimidating. She, she really could. She was intimidating, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and to me too and that's what I was told by everybody I was basically told oh you know mind your P's and Q's well we're driving to the airport to meet my mother and in those days um, of course you know you went to the gate and they stepped out of the gate and and there you were Um, but on the way to the airport uh, Susan is saying to me so you know any tips anything I should know anything I should do and I said well there is and here, ladies and gentlemen, I was at my most cunning. No, excuse me. I wouldn't say cunning. As I said, there were things that you could have worked on with social maturity that you did not in the years prior to I me. prefer. I prefer cunning. <laughs> I was at my most diabolical. I, Susan says, uh, well, let's act this out, Susan. No, you just tell it. No, act it out. <laughs> This is not a video. Doesn't matter. The the it'll be more helpful for our happy warriors. So, is there anything I should know? Any special way? Uh, how should I address your mother? How should I? How should I greet her? What? Well, Susan, you, you, there is one thing. You know what? I can't ask you to do that. Now, tell me. I want to. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. So I said, are you sure? Yes, yes. Well, what is it? I said, well, there's a very traditional way that African brides meet their future mothers-in-law for the first time. What is it? And Susan, yeah, what's, what it is. Now, now, just as an aside, I'm filling you in on some of the background. Um Back when I was growing up in South Africa, and I haven't been back for decades, I have no idea if this is still true or not, but there was a naughty word. It was an uncouth and vulgar word you used. Uh, Let's say you're riding a bike and a dog starts barking and chasing and snapping at your feet. Um, You would yell at the dog the word footsack, which... Anyone from South Africa who's listening right now is going... (gasps) Yeah, no, definitely. If, if you if you are from, and we have many South African listeners, you are all gasping. You you don't even want to hear me say the word "footsack" on the air because it's you know it's 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 a horrible. Uh, get out of here. Go away at at its very best, but it's even worse than that. And um, it's really a word you'd use to try and get rid of rabid dogs. And so. I mean, so I'm saying, yeah, we got this thing back in Africa. Brides greet their mothers-in-law in a certain way. But I don't want to have to make – you don't have to do it if you don't want to. She said, no, 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 no. Tell me. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. So I said, well, what you have to do is you have to go straight up to your future mother-in-law by mom and put one of your arms on each of her shoulders and look into her eyes. And then you have to very – spiritually and meaningfully and sincerely utter this word of of blessing and tradition and she said what's the word i said footsack and she 
Anna and you South Africans listening are, are gasping in horror that I could be such a terrible human being. And I, I'm I, sorry. Can I just say, because when we talk about marriages and the challenges of marriages, you stayed a 10-year-old with your parents when your parents were involved. <laughs> you, I'd say 50% of the time you were 10 years old. <laughs> um so um, so we practice the word till she can say footsack with just the right expression and the right tone of sincerity and meaning. And um, my mother steps out of the doorway in the arrivals uh, in, in the concourse. And she's wearing, I think she's wearing her white gloves. I'm sure she was. And... Um, <laughs> And she, with a little hat and everything, looking very... And I very just want to say, do not picture... A, I grew up in an Italian neighborhood with a lot where there was a lot of hugging and stuff. British people, that is not so. You, it's, you don't there's touch. There's a rule. You don't you're, touch. you're not allowed to even extend your hand for a handshake to the queen. If the queen does not extend her hand to you, you do not touch her. So, and by the way, in polite uh, English society to this present day, the prerogative of whether to shake hands is the woman's, not the I, man's. Well, I wish that would be in our society as well. The, the, men never extend their hand to a woman unless she does so first. But what in I'm other saying words, is the, not the, only the word, but putting a hand on your mother's shoulder oh, was yes. a violation of protocol yes, to begin absolutely. with. absolutely. <laughs> and so she, there she comes, and this young... A Brooklyn girl trying her best to make a good impression on this rather formidable dowager. She walks up to her, violates her space by going right up close, <laughs> touches her person by putting hands on her shoulders, looks into her eyes, and sincerely mutters the word, not matter, utters the word, footsack. Well, my mother her eyes widened to wider than I've ever seen them and she lost her breath she goes like this <laughs> <laughs> and you can pick up from there and and in a, a millisecond she turned and looked at you and said Daniel she immediately twigged on to to what had happened and she and I became very close from that moment on it was a dumb move because they <laughs> allied themselves against me uh, from then onwards but uh, but anyway you, know, you had a wonderful relationship with them and uh, and when I eventually met your parents, I had a very good relationship. Your you mom know, was was an amazing. She, I, I loved tell her. You what she you was did. incredible. My, I, my, um, we flew back together. I think my parents had met you before this, but we flew back together. My cousin got married about two months before we got married. So we were and engaged. We, flew, we were engaged, and we flew into her wedding. It was a promise my grandmother had asked each of us before she died to make that we would be at each other's weddings and so she came to my wedding and i went to hers who was this Ruth ruthie ruthie yeah that's and so remember. she we um when i stayed on you left right after the wedding and i stayed on for a little longer to go shopping with my mother and do things with my mother and you when when my mother when my parents took me to the airport I didn't know it then, but you called my mother a few hours later and said, you must be feeling very lonely. And she felt that she was very touched by that. Yeah. And so you had a wonderful relationship with her as she well. She was incredible. She really She was. went boating with us. Yeah. <laughs> she went sailing in the Caribbean with us. She went sail. She went boating in the Pacific Northwest with us. Um, you know, people often say, never mind the parents, you're marrying the person. True or not true? Um, not true, completely not true. And 
even it's not to say you can never marry someone whose parents you don't like, but it's something to take into account because, first of all, family matters. That's just matters, and even if it's just baggage, even if it's if it's a negative thing. A lot of the person you're marrying was formed by the family, and if they're deliberately and making a decision, and we know many people who have made a decision to not copy their parents and to not do, that's a decision. Yeah. The family is still the formation. Now, there's you still need to know. Yeah. It, it, it 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 helps a great deal to know um, the family people come from. Our politics don't match. A couple said uh-huh. to us, "We don't. We vote differently." You know what? If someone had said that in 1950, I would probably have said. I mean, I wasn't really alive yet, but I would have said, um, "You know, not such a big deal today." That's that's your values. Yeah, that's values. Your belief system. It's everything. Yeah. I, uh, we we would say that if you are. Uh, in the United States of America, I'd even say in England, by the way, because the Brexit vote was so reflective of underlying values, um, we would say that uh, if, if a couple is contemplating marriage and he voted one way about Britain leaving the European Union and she voted the other, they should definitely not get married yet. There's a lot that needs to be worked out. So, uh, as Susan said, you know, a few decades ago, before 1960, uh, fine, uh, because the the uh the 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 gulf wasn't so unbridgeable between the two uh, opposing sides but but today it is um any last questions you'd like to ask me in your interview no um, you know i saw i meant to i really would have wanted to take a picture of this when we were do you remember i had a speech in uh, lancaster pennsylvania recently and we had a lovely drive we Mm -hmm. drove there it was a lovely part of pennsylvania and i caught a glimpse of something that i'd i kind of was thinking to myself we can't stop now but maybe the train museum no 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 no, i want to see that no Uh, we just in a flash we drove by two trees Uh, just the imagery stuck with me and i thought to myself i'd love a picture of it like for a cover of a future book or something two trees had been planted very or grew close to one another and what had happened was they started off growing separately and they got closer and closer so by the time at at about the six foot level they were one tree and then they started almost intertwining and then by about 12 foot up it's like one tree and i just i like that imagery very much indeed because one of the things that stops uh, some people from getting married is uh, you know we we don't agree on on many of these things uh, you know she wants this i want that uh, again not on fundamental values but and i i thought of that image of those two trees and and it's something that uh, that sticks with me because the, the the thing that many people do not get many people don't understand is that who you are now and who you will be five years after marriage are not not only are not the same they shouldn't be the same because marriage makes you grow and one of the things the the ways in which you grow is you do grow towards one another and so um, things that you may have thought almost a revulsion for you would never consider you are more open to after five years of marriage to somebody for whom those things are important which is which is really something that that brings us to one of these basic points which is finding somebody and living with somebody somebody whose happiness is more important to you than your own. Well, I think also it is the mythology and this, you know, this was based on whether it's Walt Disney, but the happily ever, you know, happily ever after the marriage is the final step. And a lot of chick lit, chick literature goes like that also. 
um, the final step is you get is getting oh, married. That's a and good that's, point. You're right. You know, every Harlequin romance, the marriage is the last I, few I pages. I don't know. I don't I know read, how recently you read, read them. More I read more Harlequin romances than Susan <laughs> because they are so indicative of the deepest secret desires of the women who buy them and read and them. And that's that's a very damaging thing because what the uh, idea that marriage is the last page. Marriage is the last page yeah. because you're marriage. Right, that's a great point. The same way, you know, you don't if you're starting a business, let's say you decide to open a bakery, the day you put the open for business sign is not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the hardest work. And marriage, you know, it's, it, it, there are a lot of distractions after you're married. And a lot of times in getting ready for the marriage, you actually didn't, you know, you neglected other parts of your life possibly because it takes yes. a lot of time. But it's marriage can never be on the neglected burner. And, you know, as children come, look, there's challenges. And I think that is something that we certainly, um, uh, we always, 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 not, you can't do this every day. Sometimes you, you know, the days go, but we don't, we never let um, too much time go by without spending fun time together. And that might have been a three hour drive. It might have been a half-hour outing, and it might be an overnight. That's how I got, overnight. That's how I managed to persuade you to go out for coffee with me yesterday. Right. Yesterday, yes. right. We're, we're, exactly. So we, we never let too much time go without spending marriage time. Okay, time for just two more topics. One is… Oh, my goodness. Um, I thought we are finished. No, no, no. Marriage isn't the end of last page. <laughs> uh, the um, rules of engagement, right? Obviously, there are going to be disagreements and fights. I would go as far as to say, would you agree with me if I say that uh, if there are not fights during the first year, that's probably not a good thing? That, that things are getting swept under the rug. It means or too much is being swept under the rug. Okay, That's maybe right. change the word fight to conflict. Yes, okay, good, fair enough. Uh, rules of engagement. What What is permissible, what's non-permissible in um, in marriage conflict? Well, what's, what's non-permissible is I think we may have to have a divorce. The divorce word is non-permissible unless you've reached a point that you actually are 99% it's on a little the bit to like, divorce. It's a little bit like owning it's a not firearm. A One yeah. of the responsibilities of owning a firearm is never, ever point it at anybody unless it's loaded and you're willing to shoot. Right. So the D word does not get used as a bargaining chip or as mm. a threat. Um, and in general, I think learning how to, and, and I don't think we were very good at this, I think um, learning that you have different styles of dealing with conflicts. And I think we were, we did fit the stereotype that your style was to withdraw and go silent. Totally forbidden. You're absolutely, if you're in the middle of an argument, you cannot walk out. You cannot disengage. But, but I could have understood that as, that another a woman's tendency is to talk and a man's tendency is to get more quiet. Yes. <laughs> so it would have been helpful maybe if we had both understood at the beginning that we need to structure things so that it's, um, it's astonishing to me how much I knew when we got married. That did not... The theoretically. That did not apply practically. No, that should have and did, but uh, I was not able to because it needed a certain yeah. maturity. Well, and, I, think, uh, I do think there's a lot more material out, and I think there's some of it's bad. There's, you know... Yeah. There's a lot of negative and harmful material out, but there's also a lot of good material out yes. there that you can learn from. Yeah. And I think that is a good idea. So that's rules of engagement, I'd say that. Yeah, definitely. And um, and and here's the, the final thing that I wanted to touch on, which is that 
uh, it's become common in the culture now to speak of, well, we live much longer than people used to years ago. And so the whole idea of being married for life no longer applies. After all, forever is a very long time. And we should get used to the idea. So essentially, this is a strategy being used by serial um, marriages that you should have serial, serial marriages, marriages. And, and this is largely brought about one. by uh, divorced people who are a little bit like um, these are like people who thought the ocean liner was sinking. So they jumped overboard into a life vest and they're floating in the water and they're yelling up to everyone on the boat. Come on in. The water's fine. Join us here. Um, and there's a tendency to do that. So the honest, yeah, listen, don't don't think. And by the way, I can readily understand how dangerously seductive this can be to couples uh, in a marriage. Everyone goes through times of concern. And if if the culture, if something you trust, your friends, the me, everyone's beaming at you the message, hey, you know what? Your marriage has run its course. Every marriage has a natural lifespan and it's time for you to move on for both of you. Well, that's the phrase now is that he or she is a wonderful person. We just we just are growing in different ways. We're growing apart. That's yes. right. That was the Gates marriage. That was that, you know, whatever it was. And on one hand, I feel like I don't need to know all your dirty laundry, but that kind of a sentence is dangerous and a bad thing in itself as if. You know, we're, she's basically a great person. He's basically a great guy. We could stay married, but we're each looking for more happiness. That's a very damaging idea. It because is. Because marriage then, it wasn't a covenant that you entered with the seriousness that it needs. So what, I, what I'd like to convey to people, and, and again, I'm First hoping... First of all, can I just mention, if you look like Abraham and Sarah, the years they lived, they had longer marriages than we do. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> but a few years have elapsed since then. We've had our ups and downs. But uh, but I, I think the, um, the, the popular culture message is, look, you know this person really well already. There's nothing left to discover about them. It's time for freshness and newness and adventure. And so you're doing yourselves both a favor by, in a friendly and amicable way, kiss each other goodbye. You each go your separate ways and you move on to new relationships because nobody ever intended marriage to last for 20 or 30 or 40 years. So this way you get two marriages in 40 years instead of just one. And, this, and that way each one has the freshness and newness of getting to know a new person. And so uh, the, the answer to to that it's false and the answer is not that the magic comes from discovering new things necessarily in that person although that yes will and does happen constantly what it is is discovering new things in the world outside of yourselves together that is what it is and uh, that is something that never stops at any point at all do am i making that clear that yeah, it's not you. it's not in the closed circle of you and me that we have to be constantly finding new drama and new adventure and new discoveries although that always happens we do, yeah but more importantly uh, when the two of us encounter Something a new, new idea, a new experience, a new event, a new confrontation. And, and that, doing that with somebody 
with whom you've intertwined over the years is a is a very exciting and very wonderful thing so that is uh, i mean i have many many more questions that that people have brought <laughs> in and you probably could come up with a couple as well but um for now i just i'm, I'm hoping people do you think people like this i don't know they will tell you i haven't noticed any shyness about people telling you when and, they do and i love like that something. by the way so uh, if you're listening to this on uh, on YouTube, on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin YouTube channel, hey, just put it right there. If uh, anywhere else, why don't you write to us at, uh, go to the website, youneedarabbi.com, youneedarabbi.com. And then in the uh, drop-down menu under About Us, you'll find a tab that says Contact Us, and we will see your letter. So I hope you enjoyed us doing this. This is a little bit different from the, the normal format of uh, of uh, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, but it's I just wanted to have this conversation uh, together with you, feeling that uh, you might like this uh, slightly personal glimpse into our lives and into our marriage. Alternatively, uh, you may have thought this to be a horrendous waste of time, and hey, either way is right. We want to hear from you, and you know that my mission is to serve you as, uh, as much as possible, to bring you real value, not just entertainment not just information but yes a limitless reservoir of inexhaustible stamina that comes from really understanding your five f's getting your five f's your faith your family your friendships your finances and your fitness up to speed and also in terms of getting to know how the world really works all of that is so exciting and so energizing that those are the things that we really do want to bring to you while you're at the website sending us a hello note and a greeting uh, also take a look at scrolling through scripture the online course uh, which is a verse-by-verse analysis of the first 34 verses of Genesis, uh, which will literally open your eyes. Um, it'll expose you to a Bible you never knew. Uh, and I say this to, to people who are atheists, people who are Bible believers, and everybody in between. You cannot afford to ignore a book that has shaped civilization more than any other book book in the last well in the thousands of years of human history no other book so you can't afford to remain ignorant of this book and uh, something i'll talk about more in, in a future show but i'm discovering many people now who are not known as bible believers who are not known as religious people but who are saying that uh it, you you can't manage without having a some awareness of a religious structure i'm thinking of the wonderful current historian neil ferguson i don't remember if he's at stanford now or harvard he tends to move around do you know who his wife is susan no uh, ali hersey oh, right. oh yes the um, the remarkable and brave i think she's originally from somalia but she was in holland for many years and um Anyway, the two of them make quite a couple. I've not thought of them in any ways religious, but well, just... Well, she, um, she left Islam. She left Islam. She was born and, yeah. and she rejected it. Anyway, my point is that people who are not religious are surprising me. Um, Neil Ferguson wrote a wonderful book called The West and the Rest. 
you know, looking at the fact that Western civilization has succeeded more than any other on the face of the planet. And this isn't his opinion or my opinion. It's the opinion of thousands and thousands and millions of people who risk everything in order to come and live under the socio-moral and legal underpinnings of Western civilization, whether it's in North America or whether it is uh, Western Europe. So uh, scrolling through scripture is the course. You can see it on the website, youneedarabbi.com. Read about it, and uh, you may well find that you want to join the group of us who are studying verse by verse through the first 34 verses of the Bible, which really lay the foundation for an understanding of the entire book. Susan, I think that that's probably as far as we're going I think for that's today. As far as we're so going. thanks for being part of the show. And as always, I so appreciate the work you do in helping to promote the show and win us new listeners. I think I've told you before, I'm a little obsessive about watching the download numbers and, um, and get very uplifted when they climb and get downcast. Well, not much, but, uh, but I'm aware when no, they... No, because you know you are responsible for your happiness, not happiness, your download numbers. That's exactly right, which takes us... <laughs> full circle thanks for being part of this show and uh, i want to wish you a fabulous week ahead as you develop your relationship with god with your finances with your family and friends and with your own health and fitness i'm rabbi daniel lappin god bless Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.